Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. This is our second message in the series that we anticipate will take us all the way to Christmas 2023. So hopefully you'll all be with us this entire journey. Um, We're going to look at verses 4 through 9 of the first chapter in a message that I've entitled, The True Light. The True Light. Most of you are probably familiar with the classic, now classic work, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. This work is actually a collection of seven books, the first being the most famous and popular, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The second book in the series is this one here, Prince Caspian. And in that book, there is a fantastic exchange between Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure in the books and in the works, and Lucy, one of the four children, one of the four humans, she really represents the most faithful and truest follower and believer. Well, there's been a long period of separation between Lucy and her beloved Aslan the lion, and so after that long separation, they come together, and I'm going to read from the text of the book. You look on the screen. Here's what the book says. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, his warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now that is a profound principle about the Christian life. Every year we grow, we will find Christ bigger. The more mature we get, the enlarged our vision of Jesus will be. He will become grander. He will be, we will become enlarged. And the converse of this is true as well. The more that our comprehension and understanding and belief in Jesus grows, our maturity will grow. Our spiritual vitality will increase. That's why I'm so excited about our theme for this year, Jesus is blank. As we go through the Gospel of John, we will come to understand from the beloved disciple, John, all these things about the nature and the character and the life and the person of Jesus. And as our understanding of Jesus is enlarged by God's grace, we will mature. We will correspondingly grow as well. You see, our spiritual vitality is inextricably linked to our view of Jesus. And as that view grows, as that comprehension grows, so does our spiritual life. We need to get away from a one-dimensional, small Jesus and see Jesus for as grand as he is. And this is the Jesus that John, his best friend, presents in what's called the prologue of the gospel, the first 18 verses that we're studying together. And we're going to see this morning one of those things about Jesus, that he is the true 
light. Now, last week I told you, if you remember, when we started talking about the last couple of points on my message, he is the life, he is the light. I told you then we're going to come back to this concept of light this week, and that's exactly what we're going to zero in on. So with your Bible open or your Bible study outline in front of you, let's look at our focal passage, John 1, beginning in verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through 9. This is God's word. Hear it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, Bible students, I've told you before that one of the things we look for in a passage we're studying is repeated words or phrases. Did you pick up on a repeated word in that passage? What was it? Light. In those six verses, the word light is used seven times. Jesus is the light. That's who he is. And I want to take the next few minutes to just think about that concept that Jesus is is the light. Now, light is something we experience every day on a daily basis without really even thinking about it. We walk in the light, we come into a room, and we turn on the light. We come in this morning, and we see the light. But I think we need to break this concept down that's so familiar to us, this phenomenon we experience every day, and see how those realities give us insight into who Jesus is as the true light. There's four things from the passage I want us to see. The first one is this. As the light, Jesus shines. As the true light, Jesus shines. And that's exactly what verse 5 says. The light shines in the darkness. Again, we take this thing called light often for granted because it is such a familiar phenomenon and reality that we're used to. And we can sometimes look at light as something of a static condition, that light is either there or it's not there. It's either on or it's not on. Uh, My wife loves to put on all of our light switches dimmers, right? Everything's got to have a dimmer on it, as complicated as those things are to install. Thank you very much. And so (laughs) she likes dimmers. But regardless, wherever you put the dimmer on, it's there either there or it's not there. But here's the thing. Light is not static. Light is not just there. Light is actually, even though we may not be able to tell it, is always moving. It's moving in waves. I think maybe if we consider something of a scientific definition for light, I'm not going to get too deep here because I'm not a deep scientist anyway. I think it'll help us to kind of understand these concepts a little bit. There's really three two-word definitions that I saw this week in my research, really in the field of physics, with regard to light. Here's what it is. Light is, first definition, luminous energy. Second definition, light is radiant energy. Third definition, light is electromagnetic energy. I'm not going to explain all those because honestly, I don't really know what it means. But we do see a connecting word there. What is it? Energy. Light is energy. And so if we think about Jesus as light, what is he? He's energy. He is power. It's energy, mind you, that we can see. It's luminous. It's radiant energy. It is not static. Light is moving. We've heard the phrase before, moving at the speed of light. How fast is that? Well, again, I didn't know this. I had to look it up. It's 186,282 miles per second. 
That's how fast light moves, 186,282 miles per second. Now, if you think about it, our sun is 93 million miles away. So how long does it take the light of the sun to get here? Let's see, carry the two. That's eight and a half minutes, roughly, for the light of the sun to get here. And the Bible says Jesus is the light, and as the light, he shines in the darkness. He is this luminous, this radiant energy, power. Jesus shines, which is why he is also the life, because light gives life. That's the first thing I want us to see from the passage. As the light, Jesus shines. Here's the second thing. As the light, Jesus gives sight. As the light, Jesus gives sight. Back to the somewhat scientific explanation. Light is moving, and as it moving, it moves, it is moving in a wave, and that wave of luminous energy hits the retina of your eye, and you are given visibility. You're given illumination. You're given sight. So think about it. When you go into a dark room, what's the first thing you do? Turn on the light, right? Or if it's dimmer, you turn on the light, right? You turn the light on. Why? Because there might be an ottoman in the middle of the living room that you're going to trip over like Dick Van Dyke, right? You don't want to do that, so you turn the light on. There might be uh, some stairs that you've got to go down. You want to turn the light on so you don't take a tumble down the stairs. If you're a parent, you want to make sure there are not any stray Legos that you're going to step on. Many of you have experienced that. We turn the light on because it exposes obstacles and potential things that would be otherwise unseen in the dark. So think about this aspect with regard to Jesus. Apart from Jesus, it is impossible to see spiritual things clearly. It is impossible to see spiritual things clearly without Jesus. He gives illumination to truth. And this is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said about the coming of Jesus. He said this in Isaiah 9 too. He said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Mankind is living in a perpetual state of spiritual darkness. Mankind is ignorant about God, ignorant about their own spiritual condition, ignorant about their lostness, and quite frankly, living in superstition because of that darkness. We often think in the 21st century, we are so advanced in our thinking and our understanding and in our experience, and we're so highly evolved intellectually, we don't have any kind of darkness or superstition like those really, you know, pagans or barbarians. Yeah, right. How many of you have heard people say, you know, I don't want any bad karma? You know what that is? Superstition. Hey, don't say anything. You'll jinx it. What is that? Superstition, right? Hey, knock on wood. What is that? Superstition. You've probably even seen people say, hey, can y'all send me some good vibes? I don't even know what that means. What is it? It's superstition. Essential oils. Superstition. I'm only kidding. They're not. I know they have some medicinal value. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) We live in a spiritually dark, spiritually blind culture. Where does this blindness come from? Where does the darkness come from? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 
I know many of you are like me, and you become frustrated, irritated, perhaps even righteous indignation when we think of all the wickedness going on in our world. We think of the corruption of politics and the bent of the media when we think about the crime and the hostilities and the abuse and the neglect. And certainly, friends, we should stand for what is right. We should stand for justice and truth. But we must always remember most of society is blinded by the evil one. Most of the world is in spiritual darkness. And as dark As it is, as blinded as they are, they don't have the capacity to overcome their darkness. But the darkness does not have the capacity, according to verse 5, to overcome the light. And here's the deal. Even as Christians who have had the light of the gospel, gospel illumine our souls to truth, we can still be given over to darkness. We can still have bouts or experiences of this spiritual blindness, through sin, through disobedience to the Word, that we can start turning that dimmer switch down. The evil one can tempt us so easily into thinking that those hidden things that we think are hidden, nobody will see, nobody will know about, and it doesn't really affect anyone. But here's something we all know as believers. God sees and God knows. And you know what we need? We need the light of his truth to shine into our hearts, even those dark places we want to keep hidden. In James chapter 1, verse 23, the Bible, the word of God is compared to a mirror. A mirror. What is a mirror? A mirror is just simply reflecting light back to us. I know my mom had one of these illuminated mirrors in her bathroom growing up. And it was one of those that had two sides, right? One side was the normal magnification. You flip it over, and it's a 10x magnification mirror. And that 10x side with the bright light, I mean, it reveals all the imperfections, all the flaws, all the wrinkles. I mean, us guys, when we stand before a mirror, we're kind of at a distance looking at it, making sure we're not too wrinkled. Okay, we're good to go. You ladies who daily look at a 10x mirror at all the flaws and the tight scrutiny you put yourself under, my hat goes off to you that you put yourself under such scrutiny. But this is the kind of scrutiny spiritually we all need. We need to look at the 10x magnification of the Scripture and let the light of truth shine into our souls and reveal those flaws, reveal those imperfections, reveal those wrinkles. Why? So that we can be changed, so that we can be transformed. Jesus put it like this in Mark 4. He said, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. That's what the light of Jesus does. It shines into our souls. He turns up that light to its brightest setting, puts the mirror on the 10x magnification so that we can give those things to him. You see, the reality is if if we were honest, we don't always want God to shine his light on our sin. It's too strong. It's too revealing. But here's the truth I want us to come around today. Look at this next slide. It is only when our problems, and you could insert the word sin, issues, faux pas, whatever you want to put there, only when our problems are revealed by the light that they can actually be resolved by the light. 
when the spotlight of his conviction shines into the depths of our souls, friends, we won't be strutting around bragging about how good we are. We won't be looking down our condescending noses at those bad sinners in the world. We will be like Isaiah when he got a glimpse of the glory and the light and the Shekinah of Jesus on the throne. What did he do in Isaiah chapter 6? He responded like this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As the light, Jesus gives sight, and when he gives sight, we're not so much concerned about other people around us. We're really concerned about ourselves. As our understanding of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus grows, we will grow in our maturity and in our understanding. We'll get, as Aslan said to Lucy, older the bigger he gets. Jesus, as the light shines, as the light Jesus gives us sight. Thirdly, as the light, Jesus is the source. Jesus is the source. In verses 6 through 9, John, the gospel writer, introduces us to a new character in his gospel account. It's another John, John the Baptist. He's not introducing himself. He's introducing one John the Baptist. Let's read those verses again, verse 6 through 8. Excuse me. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Now here, John chapter 1 of the gospel, 40% of this first chapter is about the John known as John the Baptist. So it's not surprising for us to find him very early here in the text. But nevertheless, the change is abrupt. First, the gospel writer, the evangelist, John the apostle, is writing about the glory and the greatness of Jesus. He is the uncreated one. He is the preexistent one. He is the creator of all that exists. All of a sudden, and then he just turns on a dime from the uncreated one to this created being, John. He turns from the God-man, Jesus, to a man, John the Baptist. Now, in verse 6, as the, shift, as, the, as the focus shifts to this created being, he's simply identified as John. And again, this is referring to John the Baptist. Interestingly, in the 21 chapters of this gospel account, John doesn't refer to himself by his own name, the gospel writer, at all. Instead, he always refers to himself as the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you think about it, if you had the option between referring to yourself as John or the disciple whom Jesus loved, which one would you pick? And that's what he picks. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he mentions John the Baptist by name some 20 times in his, in his book. The first thing we're told about John the Baptist is that he is a man sent from God. Now, what does this communicate to us? There's something of a miraculous aspect about John the Baptist's coming. He was sent from God. And there's several things we can learn here and in parallel passages about the miraculous nature of the coming of John the Baptist. For one, John the Baptist's coming was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah in his 40th chapter described John the Baptist's coming as a voice crying in the wilderness, make way for the Lord, straighten out the highway. 
In the last book of our Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, he's described as one coming who will precede the Lord's arrival. We can also know that his coming is miraculous because of his conception. John the Baptist's conception was miraculous. His parents were barren throughout their entire married life. And then all of a sudden, she's pregnant. They're in their 80s, well beyond childbearing years. His conception was miraculous. It was supernatural. We also know his coming was miraculous and supernatural because God sent an angel from heaven to tell his father that he's going to be sending this forerunner of the Messiah. So this bold, powerful, humble, effective prophet, he is sent from God, but notice he says he was a man sent from God. There's a contrast that the gospel writers wanting us to see here. There's a contrast between Jesus, the God of the universe, the creator, and John, the man. The Lord Jesus from all eternity, John the Baptist, he came at a specific time in history. The Lord Jesus is the creator. John the Baptist is the created one. Now, from the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learned that John the Baptist had this massive following of people who came out to the Jordan River, out into the, the desert, if you will, from Judea and from the city of Jerusalem to be baptized. And they were being baptized. This was mainly, the, the act of baptism was mainly a Jewish rite that Gentiles were put, put through to show that they were now proselytizing into Judaism. John the Baptist is baptizing Jews. And it's a baptism of repentance. They are baptizing and saying, at least on the surface, uh, we are repenting because we want to prepare for the coming of the Lord, prepare for the coming of Messiah. I want you to notice how Jesus describes John the Baptist in another gospel account in Matthew chapter 11. Here's what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, which is everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born. Why is that? Is he the most intelligent? No. The most educated? No. The most insightful? No. The most prosperous? No. Why would Jesus say that John the Baptist was the greatest of those born among women? Here's why. Because John the Baptist had the greatest responsibility. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He had the greatest privilege to declare that the Lord is here, that Christ had come. So this made him greater in terms of responsibility, greater in terms of privilege. He was bold. He was forthright. Yet he was humble, resolute, and faithful. But here in our focal passage, we're introduced to John, not so much as a biography like we find from the other gospel accounts, but only in the sense that we get a look at his ministry as it is defined. Here's how John the Baptist's ministry is defined in verse 7. Look at it again. He came, John the Baptist came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The text says he came as a witness. The Greek word there under that term witness is the word Marturia in Greek. We get our English word martyr from that. 
We understand what a martyr is, somebody that dies for their testimony, somebody that dies for their faith, somebody that dies for their witness. And so there's something in that word that lets us know when we give witness to Jesus, when we give testimony, marturia, about Christ, we are opening ourselves up to at least some form of ridicule and perhaps words. With John the Baptist, how did his testimony for truth end up? Well, he was arrested thrown in prison because he spoke out against Herod because he was committing adultery on his wife and left her for a mistress. And then, to top it off, John the Baptist's head was served on a platter as a party favor for said mistress. That's the consequence of his witness, marturia. But in first century Greek language, this term marturia was really a courtroom word. It was a legal term, and we still use those terms today. If you're called into a courtroom and you stand on the witness stand, you're called to give testimony. Same thing, and that's really the context here. John the Baptist was placed in the courtroom of the world to give witness and to give testimony of who Jesus is. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. Why? Verse 7 says that all might believe through him. John is coming back. John, the gospel writer, is coming back to this theme we looked at last week in chapter 20. Remember the theme of the book? These things were written to you so that you might believe and that believing you might have life in his name. And he says this is why John the Baptist was here, to bear witness about the light so that people would believe. And verse 8 is careful to point out that John the Baptist was not the light. He came only to bear witness about the light. In fact, we'll see in a couple of weeks when we look at the end of chapter 1, some Jewish priest actually asked John the Baptist as he's proclaiming repentance and preaching. They said, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he was very clear-headed, no, I'm not the Messiah. He knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. There's another interesting way that Jesus refers to John the Baptist in this gospel account in John chapter 5. Notice what Jesus says, speaking of his cousin John the Baptist. He says this, he, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. What is a lamp? Here, this word referred to an oil lamp with a wick that was burning. John the Baptist is a lamp. He's derived light. He is not essential light. He is a lamp that is burning. In the same way, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, we're not the ultimate light. That's Jesus. We're lamps. Hide it under a bushel? Let's try that again. Hide it under a bushel? We're going to let it shine. (laughs) We are lamps. And John the Baptist is a lamp, whereas Jesus is essential light. In other words, Jesus is the source. He utilizes people like John the Baptist. He utilizes people like you and me to be reflections of the light. And this distinction is important for us today, that we are derived light. We are lamps who project and who reflect the light of Christ. Gospel ministers, pastors, preachers, TV evangelists, they are lamps. Let's not forget that. In our modern evangelicalism, we have a tendency, I think because we're so enamored by celebrity, 
to elevate these people to a position we should not elevate them to. And then we're so surprised and shocked when they have a great fall. They should have never been put on a pedestal to begin with. We are all just lamps, regardless of someone's charisma, his eloquence, his charm, his capacities and giftedness. We're all just derived light. We bear witness to Jesus. We testify of Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. But we must always remember we're lamps. In fact, this truth leads us to another fundamental reality I want you to see. Look at the next slide. As lamps, we do not have the capacity to transform people's hearts. This is so imperative for us to remember. We do not have the capacity, the ability, the illumination to transform people's hearts. Only the true light can do that. We can bear witness to the light. We can reflect the light. And it's because of this truth that we don't have the capacity to transform people's hearts that you will not see this preacher lead a long, drawn-out, emotional altar call. I don't have the ability to transform people's hearts. Here's what we do. We preach the gospel. We shine a light on Jesus. We always give an opportunity for people to respond. But friends, we've all experienced those types of situations that were really uncomfortable and probably not good. I remember as a youth pastor on one occasion, I took my large youth group to a big youth rally down in Chickamauga. And there was a youth evangelist preaching there, and he preached about a 15-minute sermonette And then he gave an altar call that was basically 45 minutes. We left after 45 minutes of emotionalism and coercion and manipulation, trying to get these 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds to be another notch on his evangelical belt. We don't coerce. We don't manipulate. We shine the light on Jesus, and we say, Jesus, you illuminate dead hearts to life. This is who Jesus is. We remember we are lamps. We trust him to do the illumination. In a couple weeks, we'll come back to John the Baptist again, like I said, and we'll see this is precisely what he does. Notice John 1, verse 35 and 36. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. You know what John the Baptist was doing? He was always putting the spotlight on Jesus, not on himself. He was shining the light on Christ. He was bearing witness to the truth. He knew, I am not the light. He's the light. I'm not the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus. He's the true light. And as the light, Jesus shines. As the true light, Jesus gives illumination and sight. As the true light, he is the source of all light. But thirdly, as the light, Jesus is salvation. Jesus is salvation. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. When the light, the spiritual light of Christ, hits the living soul, it's like light hitting the retina of the eye. Boom! It's illuminated. It's illuminated. It's like the opening and the functioning of the eye. The soul is then open to understand and to believe. And the light, according to the gospel writer John, is none other than the life, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who we've already learned is the logos, the word. He's the very speech of God. He is the life through which all life comes, and he is the light. Apart from him, there is no 
life apart from him, we are lost in darkness. And John adds here in verse 9, another layer that helps us understand our understanding of comprehension of who Jesus is, another layer to Jesus. He says he is the true light. True light. We're going to see from chapter 1 through the 21 chapters that there are several themes that John comes back to again and again. He comes back to the theme of belief. He comes back to the theme of life. And he comes back to this theme of true or truth all through his gospel account. We'll see in chapter 4 in several weeks, several months, when we get to chapter 4, as Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well, what does he say in chapter 4? He says, God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. You get to chapter 6, Jesus declares, I am the true bread of heaven. You come to chapter 14, that most famous I am statement of Jesus in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You go into chapter 15, another I am statement, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine. And when the Bible says that Jesus is true, that Jesus is truth, means he is ultimate truth. He is final truth. He is consummate truth. And John introduces us here to this concept of truth early on. You know, if you've read through the book of Hebrews, you know that multiple times the author of Hebrews describes the Old Testament scriptures as shadows. He calls them shadows of the good things to come. What do you have to have in order to have a shadow? Light. A a shadow is a reflection or a broadcast, a projection from the light. And so the Old Testament is all shadows, types, imagery. But then the light has come. He's here. Jesus is here, and he is the true light. And this true light, according to verse 9, it says, gives light to who? Only a select few. It gives light to, well, if you're in your right tax bracket. It gives light to this ethnicity, this background, this race. Now, we know that there will be around the throne of God people from every tribe and tongue and race and language and people group. And so the gospel of Jesus, the light of Jesus is for everyone. For everyone. Now, this was a radical idea for the Jews of the first century. Because the Jewish people thought the Jewish Messiah was coming for the Jews. And it wasn't really for even the Jewish disciples of Jesus until the Spirit came down upon them in Pentecost and then begins to spread them out into these Gentile regions that they begin to discover, oh, wait a second, the light of Jesus is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. He's spreading his good news to the whole world. Now, I recognize this term I've used here, salvation, or the word saved. It's a very churchy word. Now, there's a reason it's a churchy word, because it's a Bible word. If we preach the Bible, we're going to come across this concept of being saved or salvation. What does it mean? It means to be rescued from a desperate condition. It means to be delivered uh, from bondage, to be set free from enslavement, to be found when you're lost. And this is the profound power, the profound capacity of, of the true light. He gives light of salvation. I'll close by illustrating the profound nature of the true light 
with an account from a late theologian and scholar of the last century named Harry Ironside. Harry A. Ironside, on one particular occasion, was in, of all places, the city of San Francisco, California, and he was giving a series of speeches there to all who would come to listen. On one occasion, while he was about to give a speech in this filled auditorium, a very famous atheist came in and went down to Harry Ironside and handed him a card. Mr. Ironside read the card, and then after he read the card personally, he then read the card out loud to the assembled public. The card read as such, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me this question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. After reading the card, he responded to the famous atheist with these words. I am very much interested in this challenge. Therefore, I will be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. In order to prove the esteemed atheist has something worth fighting for and worth debating about, he will promise to bring with him to the hall next Saturday two people, one man and one woman. The man shall be one who for years was what is commonly called a down-and-outer, a man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion heard the glorification of agnosticism and the denunciations of the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from the meeting saying, Henceforth I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, found that a new power had come into his life. The sense he once loved, he now hates, and righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life, all because he is an agnostic. And he said, the woman you find to bring should also have a similar testimony about the powers of skepticism to change your life. Then he turned to his own side of the bargain. He said, I will bring with me, at the very least, 100 men and women who for years lived in just such sinful degradation as I've tried to depict, but who have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel which you ridicule. I will have these men and with me, women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. And at that challenge, the atheist turned and walked away in silence because he knew skepticism and agnosticism and all the clever criticisms, all the well-formed arguments have no power to deliver someone from the depths of depravity. But when the light of Jesus shines into the heart of a lost sinner like me, he is lifted up and he is saved gloriously, delivered by the power of God, set free because the light of Jesus has shone into his heart and illuminated him to truth. This is why we preach the gospel because it alone has the power to save. It alone has the power to bring forgiveness of sin. Friends, that is our greatest need. We have all kinds of needs, felt needs, thought needs, relational needs. Our greatest need today is to be forgiven by holy God from the way we have offended Him in our disobedience and in our sin And this loving God has provided the means of forgiveness. You see, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world, was sent by God 
to be that punishment bearer, to be that sin bearer, to take the just penalty we all deserve because of our disobedience to God so that all who trust in Jesus, all who place their faith in his name can have new life, can have salvation. You may be here this morning, and like I told you a moment ago, we're not going to have a manipulating, coercive, emotional response time, but we will have a response time. You may have heard the gospel, and you may have been on the edge of belief, the edge of faith. Maybe today you place your faith in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Or you may be a believer this morning, and there may be someone, an acquaintance, a friend, a coworker, family member, who you know is in darkness, whose eyes have been blinded by the evil one. Maybe just as a show of trust and faith in God, you may want to come to these steps and just lift that name up to the Lord and make intercession before the throne of grace that the light of the true gospel and of Christ would shine in their lives and would illuminate them to the truth. This is what we're going to do in our response time as we prepare to receive this communion together as a family. And that leads to my last thought. We who have been illuminated by the true light are called to testify, to give witness, to marturia to those who are in darkness. Let's pray as we prepare to respond.